0: Hi, I'm Shelly and I'm Nicole and you're listening to the baby pro podcast where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life every episode we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know such as creating the perfect birth plan infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn welcome to the show Hello friends, welcome back. This is Shelley Taft and I am flying solo again this episode, but not to worry, the lovely Nicole will be joining us again at the next episode. I'm really excited for our guest speaker today because we're kind of going to be talking about what is often viewed as a controversial topic, at least in parenting groups. If there's one thing that you want to do to start up drama, in parenting groups is to bring up this topic and that is circumcision. So this week we'll be talking with Georgianne Chapin and she is the executive director of intact America, which opposes circumcising any child, male or female before they can give consent. So I hope you enjoy our interview with Georgian. I hope you listen to it with an open mind and hopefully you'll learn some things that you didn't know before. But first let's dive into favorite of the week. So this week, my favorite of the week is something I'm probably going to get made fun of, but it's another TV show and it's called the card. It is on paramount plus. I always grew up as a truckie. I used to watch Star Trek with my stepfather and then I continued to watch it on my own. And every time there's a new season that or a new show that comes out to continue the franchise or new movie, I'm really excited to see it. So I did end up watching Picard and I must say that Patrick Stewart ages like, wow, like fine wine. Like I think he ages really well, just listening to him read like Shakespeare. He's so talented. His acting is just so good. Um, So I was really looking forward to seeing him on the screen again, and it did not disappoint. It was a really great show. Um, It's not over yet. They haven't released the next season yet, but I'm really looking forward to that. So if you are interested in Star Trek, or even if you're not interested in Star Trek, it is a completely different vibe than the older Star Trek series, much like a lot of the new um, series and movies that are coming out. Um, So I would recommend that you check that out. And that is my favorite of the week. And now we can talk about our question of the week. So this week's question was submitted to me on Instagram. And this mom wants to know how common is thrush in a baby when breastfeeding? Is it something that I need to worry about when my baby is born? I love this question. So for those who don't know, thrush is like the overgrowth of fungus in the mouth. I mean, basically you can kind of think of it as a yeast infection in the baby's mouth. If the baby has thrush, then most often the mom, the breastfeeding parent has thrush as well. The problem with thrush is it can be really hard to diagnose because it does present differently, a little differently for everyone. So most of the symptoms that people look for in babies is a white coating on the tongue, And then for moms, you might have a white coating on the nipple, but oftentimes there will just be like a sharp shooting pain that shoots up the breast. Not just during feedings either, like in between feedings too. It doesn't happen as often as people think it happens, but a lot of times it will be diagnosed. A baby will be diagnosed with thrush and it's not actually thrush. It's what we call milky tongue. So when the baby is feeding and then in between feeds, the tongue comes up. So when the baby's feeding the tongue comes up against the nipple and then in between feeds, when the baby has their mouth closed, the tongue comes up against the palate. Your baby's tongue, well, all of our tongues have these little tiny bumps that kind of look like small hairs and they're called papillae. I'm not entirely sure I'm saying that correct. Normally they only grow about one milliliter before they shed off and they shed off because the palate actually cleans the tongue and kind of grounds those papillae down to help them shed. So what happens if your baby isn't bringing their tongue up against the palate and, or what happens if your baby's palate is really high? So, that the tongue isn't making contact with the roof of the baby's mouth. When that happens, the palate can't kind of help those papillae shed. And so they grow longer than one milliliter. And that's when they kind of take on the appearance of these small hairs that are often white at the tip. And because the hairs are longer than they should be, they kind of trap the milk into a layer on the tongue. And then the layer just keeps building up on itself. Sometimes I'll, I have even seen milk tongue so thick on a baby's tongue that there's like lint or dog hair trapped in the layer of milk on the tongue. Now, when you have milky tongue, usually it is, or all the time, actually, it is only on the tongue. You won't see the milk spots or anything that white coating anywhere else in the baby's mouth. And it will often can give us information about if the baby is elevating their tongue enough. So like, if you're looking at your baby's tongue, And the front of the tongue is clean, but the back of the tongue has a thick coating of milk, then that means that they might not be making contact with the roof of their mouth with the back of the tongue. Or, you know, if one side of your baby's tongue has a thicker coating of milky tongue than the other side, then that could mean there's some asymmetry on the palate or something. So because you get this built up of a milk layer, that is often misdiagnosis thrush. You know, you look at the white coating at the tongue and a lot of pediatricians will say like, oh, your baby has thrush. And we'll treat the baby for thrush. But the fact of the matter is it's not thrush. I worked with a family once who had been treating the entire family f- for thrush for months on end. Um, and they finally reached out to an IBC LC for help. And I explained, this is not thrush. This is milky tongue. This is why your babies not making contact with their palate. And within, you know, we worked on the tongue mo- movement got the baby moving his tongue better. And within a few weeks, like it was gone completely. And she had spent months treating herself, treating the baby, treating the toddler, treating the father, just because sometimes family members can pass it among themselves. And the whole time it wasn't even thrush. When you're looking at true thrush, true thrush is more of like a spotty white coating, um, whereas milky tongue is more of an even, it's not so much of a spot, but just an area covered in that white coating. Whereas thrush is more spotty and patchy. Um, thrush can also look a little bit fuzzy and you'll see it in more than just the tongue. You might see it on the roof of the baby's mouth. You might see it on the inside of the baby's cheeks. I've seen it on the inside of the lip. And that's kind of like the biggest tell of which one it is, whether it is thrush or milk tongue, is where is the milk coating? Is it just on the tongue? Does it look like just a coat, an even coating of milk, or does it look patchy? So those are ways that you can tell the difference between milky tongue and thrush. Now, if it is true thrush and your baby truly does have thrush, the other thing that I see happens a lot is if your baby has thrush or you're diagnosed with thrush, you need to treat both of you. You need to treat the breastfeeding parent and the baby. Even if say your baby is diagnosed with thrush, they have that patchy coating. We know for sure it's thrush. If your baby gets treated for thrush, you must also get treated for thrush, even if you're not showing any symptoms, because otherwise you could, you could pass it back and forth to each other. You could be completely asymptomatic because the symptoms do vary greatly from person to person. So even though you're not having any symptoms, your baby's already given you thrush and baby gets treated, but you don't get treated. So you just pass it right back to baby. And it can be really hard and complicated to get rid of if not everybody's being treated. I did work with another family where they were also had a hard case of thrush. Everybody in the family was being treated and it didn't go away until they treated the family dog. So that's how difficult it can be to treat. If you do have thrush, you want to make sure that you are sanitizing at least once a day, anything that goes into the baby's mouth, like bottles, pacifiers, toys. Uh, if you use breast pads, you want to make sure you're changing out your breast pads frequently and washing them in hot water. Same thing with your nursing bras, basically anything that comes in contact with your nipple. And if you feel like your baby might have thrush, then reach out to an IBCLC to make sure that number one, it's truly thrush and number two, to get tips for treatment. And I think it is, like I said, it's not really that common. If you get antibiotics during your labor and delivery, you are more at risk for developing thrush you and your baby. So I would recommend taking a probiotic to help prevent that. And that was such a good question. I'm really happy that you asked that. If you would like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, you can do so through Instagram. I'm at Shelly Taft, IBCLC. I also do Q and A's in my stories on Instagram one to two times a week. So if you follow me on Instagram, you can have your question answered that way as well. And next up, we will be speaking with Georgian. This week, we are speaking with Georgian Chapin, Executive Director of Intact America, which opposes circumcising any child, male or female, before they can give consent. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your program. I really appreciate it.
0: Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure.
1: First, let me let me tell you how I got involved with the issue of, of circumcision. Um, when I was 10 years old and knew nothing about sex or penises, I had only sister and mother and grandmother and, and I had a baby brother and I witnessed a terrible outcome from his circumcision. And in my family, we, we, we had to deal with that. My mother particularly, and I saw the agony that that created. And even though I didn't know, have any facts really about it, I just stayed in my mind as something that kind of like, why would we have to do surgery on a newborn baby was really kind of my thinking at the time. And then I really just didn't get mentioned or thought about. And later when I was a graduate student in anthropology and public health and the female genital mutilation conversation started coming, I began asking people, well, why do we condemn that when we do that to our little boys? And there was, of course, a lot of pushback. People continue to insist that it's somehow different to cut a boy than to cut a girl. And I always disagreed with that. And then when my son was born in 1980, my husband and I never even considered circumcising him. We knew it wasn't necessary. And why would we inflict that on him? Later on, I, I became a healthcare executive. I had a long career uh, in healthcare. And when I was 47, which is in the late 90s, I went to law school. And around the same time, just really coincidentally serendipity, my son thanked me one day. We were on a road trip and he said, You know, I never thanked you, Mom. Um, for not letting them circumcise me. And even though I was totally comfortable and used to, you know, I thought what I thought and believe what I believe, it was the first time I ever thought of circumcision as something with a lifelong impact that you would have deprived. He was obviously enjoying his natural self Mm -hmm. and that I would have even considered depriving him of a body part that had a, a lifelong function so that's really when I started moving from just kind of saying, oh, it's silly, it's ridiculous, not necessary. That's when it kind of coalesced with my earlier observations that this was something really not just traumatic to do to a baby, but something that really would would last a lifetime, the negative consequences or the positive consequences of keeping your own body. Mm-hmm. So... Um, when I was in law school, I wrote a paper for a bioethics class about circumcision and kind of made everything came, come together. And that and my son thanking me and my career in healthcare, just and, and becoming a lawyer. I just became an activist an intactivist, as we call ourselves, mm-hmm. and got involved with a group of people who had been fighting circumcision for a number of years, for decades. In 2008, with a private donation and the collaboration of this group of people, we formed Intact America. And Intact America is by far now, it's I can't believe 30, 14 years old, by far the largest anti-circumcision organization. Uh, we have a very small but mighty paid staff and some very serious volunteers and, and tens of thousands of followers on our website and Facebook page and many, many, many more who get involved on you know Twitter and, and Facebook. So we're a lot, we're a large organization with a large following and a growing image as a human rights organization. And of mm-hmm. course, the right that we're talking about is the right of every person to keep the body that nature or God or whatever your belief system is, but we know nature gave them.
0: And I will say that I 100% agree with your stance on this topic. Although- That's a relief. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <That's
1: laughs> I will relief. say
0: though, I had um, two girls and a boy And I will say that if I had a boy first, he probably would have been circumcised because at that time I had no idea. I thought it was just something that you just do and that you have to do. And it was just like this automatic thing that you do. I didn't know, for example, that most of the world actually doesn't circumcise babies routinely. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like who, who tends to circumcise? I know in the U S it was routine and still routine um, in a lot of areas why do we do it so routinely in the U.S. when the rest of the world tends not to? I did, when when my kids were young and I ended up researching it, I did read it had something to do with, and you can correct me if this is completely off-base, the Kellogg family, like as in serial Um, Kellogg? Yeah,
1: it grew out of the Victorian, it started in the Victorian era, which was the, the middle of the second half of the 19th century. So, you know, the 1870s, 1880s, before the germ theory of disease had taken hold and before we knew really before Western doctors knew what caused so many conditions and diseases. And there was a tremendous amount of sexual repression at that time. And boys masturbated, as men and women have throughout history. Um, That was seen as something dangerous and threatening to the social order and threatening to the to the male's life the spilling of sperm was thought to put him in a weakened state and kellogg's were just you know part of that mindset the kind of victorian american culture and there's actually a movie called the road to wellville that was about a resort that was in michigan that was owned by the kellogg family so John Harvey Kellogg has kind of gained this outsized reputation for starting circumcision, but it was, it was Victorian doctors who in England and America, so you're right, America's the only country, United States is the only country that routinely circumcises baby boys anymore. But in that era, it started as a custom in, in the English speaking world. So England, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, all began circumcising boys. Mm -hmm. Uh, started with teenagers as a way to discourage them from masturbating. And then as obstetrics became a specialty and childbirth moved from being a woman-centered activity with midwives, home births, natural doulas, I know you're a professional doula, but, you know, women have played that role throughout human history, uh, facilitating the process of childbirth as medical specialties grew and obstetrics became a surgical specialty and childbirth moved into hospitals, doctors started circumcising baby boys, newborn baby boys. It's a lot easier to cut off the foreskin of a of a two day old baby or a one day old baby than it is to catch a, a 14 year old and tie him down and, and cut off part of his penis, that, the part that he enjoys. So that's how it evolved. And through the first half of the, well, starting in the twenties and thirties when childbirth started, Taking place more routinely in hospitals, uh, became very common. The obst- obstetrician was the one who did it. And interestingly, being circumcised was kind of a status symbol at that time because it meant that your the mother had the resources, the money to have her baby delivered in a hospital. Of course, we all know what that entailed. It entailed drugging the mother, wrapping her up in, you know, mm. <laughs> in, in gowns. And it wasn't a safe or more healthy alternative, but it did take hold. Then around by the 40s, really, circumcision became fairly routine, but then it diverged because England developed the National Health Service. And there was a lot of controversy about, not controversy, there was a lot of facts about circumcision that it wasn't necessary. And they said, well, if it's not necessary, we're not gonna pay for it. The US had a privatized medical system, And circumcision was a fee that could be charged to the parents or later the insurance companies. So that's really how it took hold in the US. And then, you know, over the rest of the 20th century, it became firmly ensconced in American medicine and in some places in Canada, while England left it aside, Australia dropped it also in the latter part of the 20th century. New Zealand dropped it around 1970. It just became an American custom. And then we taught the South Koreans uh, to do it during the Korean War. Uh, Anywhere where American military medicine took hold, tried to get them to adopt a culture of circumcising babies. And South Korea still has a fairly prominent circumcision practice, although I'm not sure. I think it might be on the decline, but I'm not sure about that. So the U.S. remains the only Western country that for non-religious reasons, circumcises boys. And of course, in the Muslim world and, and in uh, Israel, circumcision is a routine practice, but it's not a medical practice. They don't consider it for medical reasons. It's considered a religious custom. But even certainly in Israel, there are a growing number of intact boys and families who are keeping their children intact and practicing, even if they're observant, instead of practicing the bris with cutting, they practice something called brichalum, which is a peaceful welcoming ceremony without the cutting. And mm-hmm. Lots of American Jews do that and Jews around the world. So it's not by any means universal among Jews. And we, I know less about Muslims, but I do know Muslim men who are opposed to circumcision and who are not circumcising their sons. So mm-hmm. It is It is on the decline. Uh, although still very prominent in the U.S.
0: Has it declined at all
1: in the U.S.? We think so. We, we know from it, the height of circumcision, probably the heyday of circumcision was in the 1970s in the U.S. And the statistics are terrible, but it's safe to say that at that time, 90% of American men, 85 to 90% of American boys were being caught which translates into probably 75% of adult American men today mm. are missing a part of their body that was stolen from them when they were a couple of days old. And the implications of that for our culture are really astonishing, that most men walking around today in the U.S., with the exception of immigrants from countries that don't circumcise, most men are missing that body part, and their partners have similarly not ever seen an intact male penis the impact on our culture of having most of the males, minus their natural foreskins, is quite, it's quite devastating. Mm-hmm. We think the rate now is, we don't know. I mean, I've seen official statistics, upwards of 55%. It seems still very, very prevalent in the Midwest and some other parts of the country and less prevalent on the coasts, but it varies. Mm-hmm. It even varies within cities. Um, yeah. depending on some hospitals are big circumcising hospitals and some are l- less so. Of course, it's still a fee-for-service medical procedure. So we know that women who give birth in American hospitals are heavily lobbied to cut their babies. Um, Intact America does surveys on um, various circumcision-related topics. And a couple of years ago, it's 2022, uh, and I don't want to get the date wrong. It's on our website, intactamerica.org the results. And we found that of women who had given birth in the period that we were asking about, it was the last three years, I believe, had been pressured to circumcise their son, had been asked, and some of them numerous times, and some of them described it as as coercion. Um, Mm -hmm. So that shows you how prevalent the selling of circumcision is. And the average number of asks was eight times. Um, We also asked the question, if you had not been asked, would you have circumcised your son? And upwards of 40% of women said yes. So it's still, as you said, probably something that too many women see as a default. But the number of people in our survey who circumcised their sons was way higher than that due to the asking. Mm -hmm. Had they not been asked, they would have not done it. And because they were asked and pressured, far more agreed to circumcise their sons. And of course, we hear from Thousands and thousands and thousands of women who consider themselves regret parents, regret moms, you know, they feel they were railroaded into it and they didn't have enough facts and also often in a state of, you know, postpartum exhaustion, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes under the influence of drugs, and somebody slaps a consent form on a a clipboard in front of you and Mm -hmm. um, just want to go back to sleep or be a good patient.
0: Right. And I think a lot of times the risks are downplayed as well, tremendously downplayed. Like, in fact, no in big fact, deal. It,
1: yeah, comes to outright lying a lot of the times, you know, mm-hmm. not going to hurt. Only takes a second. You won't feel a thing. He'll be fine. It's yeah. better. There's no difference. This way you can keep him clean. I mean, who doesn't want to keep their baby clean? Mm-hmm. But what's neglected to mention is you're sending a baby home with an open wound, and a diaper that's going to be filled with urine and feces and yeah. you know, there's nothing clean about circumcising baby mm-hmm. infection re- risk and healing and not to mm-hmm. mention the, the impact on his sexual pleasure. And, and that's, you know, that's a, an uneventful circumcision, you know, we know there are lots of complications.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I like your point that sometimes it depends on where you're located too. So I'm located right outside of Boston. And I do feel like uh, I've been working in the hospital for about in the hospital system for almost 10 years now. And I do feel like there has been a shift, at least in the hospital that I worked at when I first started to now where I remember a couple months ago, I was in a room and the family was asking to have the baby circumcised and the OB said like four times this is not medically necessary. If you are choosing to do, this is not for a medical reason. And then she would say, do you still want to do this? And they would say, yes. And then she would say it again. Like she said it like four times, almost like she was trying to talk them out of it. Right? Sure. Sure. And there are some providers at the hospital now who won't do them at all. So they have to like have someone else do it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen like pediatricians say like, ask the nurse, is this family going to get the baby circumcised? And the nurse say no, and the pediatrician should be like, "Oh, good," you know. So I think, at least right. in my area, there has been a shift over the last ten years where yes, that's, not that's pushing it.
1: Yeah, that that's wonderful, and you just wish that every mom having a baby could be in an environment where they're told the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with it's not medically necessary, of course, it's much more powerful to say this harmed your baby. Right. This is, this is taking away a body part that belongs to him and that has function and brings pleasure. So that would be the next step for the doctors to say, you know, it, it does hurt and it is risky. Most doctors are not quite there yet, but that's wonderful. That's a, you must feel relieved when you're in that environment and you hear that.
0: Yeah. I Um, do still see some untruths, like A lot of times I'll be in the nursery and often I walk out because I can't stand to be in the room when they're doing the actual procedure, but I can hear the baby screaming and the nurse will bring the baby back to the room and say, oh, he slept through the whole thing. And that's not true. It's not true. The baby did not sleep. And I know they're probably saying that to make the parents feel better, but you're lying to the parents. And if the baby didn't cry, it's probably because they just completely shut down from pain. I know when I
1: hear when I hear that too, I work, you know, in a hospital and the babies just sleep through it. I think, where have you put your brain to believe that, you know, that you Mm -hmm. can rip, it'd be like saying the baby slept through getting his fingernails ripped out. You know, this is an extremely traumatic procedure. And even anesthetic is used, which for decades, nothing was used, right? Mm -hmm. The baby was just immobilized. Even if anesthetic is used up penile blocks, you know, injecting painkiller into the base of the penis three injections. I mean, think about what that feels like in your mouth, if you're going to get a filling or something. And then topical anesthetic is not effective at all. Mm-hmm. So how anybody can deny the pain that it causes is, you know. so, you know, there's a lot of information on the intactamerica.org website. And we have a fantastic Facebook page where we post foreskin, Friday foreskin facts and a Monday, ask Marilyn, Marilyn Milos is a registered nurse who was the founder of the anti-circumcision, the intactivist movement. Uh, we do, that's that's Monday, a uh, column that comes out on Facebook. And then on our website, we have not only lots of information for new parents and, and babies, but we have a section called Voices, which is parents, adults speaking out about their own circumcision status experience or their experience as a you know, as an older person who was mm-hmm. decided not to circumcise, as a parent who decided not to circumcise, there's just a lot of personal stories, not being very articulate, but mm-hmm. the Voices series on the Intact America website is something that any parent who's considering circumcising uh, his or her, their child, should, should look at, because those are the stories of, of people with experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I was looking on your Instagram as well and the Intact America Instagram, and that's on there too. Which yes. I, I was yes. Yes. Through. I'm like, such a great page. So much information. Thank yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Intact America, um, we're actually doing a revamp of the site and we are unequivocally opposed to taking the body part of a child. And we also talk about some couple of other things. We talk about consent, even, even the kind of consent that a teenager or an adult can give is often uninformed consent because doctors don't tell the whole story. They don't tell the truth. So to say, you know, well let him, you know, let him wait till he's 18 and then he can decide. We have lots of stories of 18, 20, 22 year olds who were told the same garbage, really, by doctors who wanted to cut them, you know, it's it's fine. You won't notice any difference. Well if you won't notice any di- why are you doing it? Um, right. It's better, you're going to have to do the other common, it's it's going to have to be done at some point, so you might as well do it now. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's given as an excuse to parents, like, no, it's not going to have to be done at some point. In Scandinavia, where circumcision rates are, you know, below, way below 5%, probably 1% 1 were newborn circumcision rates. um, Near 100%, nearly 100% of adults in the country are not circumcised. They didn't have a medical problem requiring circumcision, and most medical problems the rare medical problems that uh, foreskin could present have other less invasive treatments. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: we don't cut off women's labia because they have a blister, right? right. <laughs> or uh, an, an infection. We don't. Um, so we don't cut off women's genitals because they get urinary tract infections. Girls right. get more urinary tract infections than boys do, mm-hmm. and they can be treated with simple antibiotics, you know, about mm. 50 cents worth of, of antibiotics will cure a urinary tract infection. So all of the pathologies that are presented as justification for circumcision are are not justifications for
0: circumcision. Right. Because I know there's a lot of talk of like circumcision reduces the risk of STDs, um, which I don't think is even true.
1: No, there's no proof. Uh, yeah. the,
0: the data that are cited now, and they're ceasing, they're starting to,
1: to say this less because there's absolutely no proof Uh, based on these very unethical studies conducted in sub-Saharan Africa among mostly marginally literate or illiterate adult men who were essentially coerced into giving up their foreskins with the rationale that they wouldn't get HIV from from women because they Mm -hmm. aren't proving any reduction in transmission from men to women. So men, Will have their foreskins removed and terrible consequences. Done, you know. This is done kind of assembly line style. They're often given food and money, supposedly for transportation or whatever, and and there they are, uh, cut loose onto a you know back in the world with this illusion that they're not going to get HIV because they're circumcised. And um, it's a it's a travesty. So. In Western countries uh, where research has been done on sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, there's absolutely no evidence to support the claim that circumcision reduces transmission of sexually transmitted infections, which doesn't. The military has done studies. There are lots of studies coming out. But this is the history of circumcision in, in the U.S., is that there are these bogus claims. You know, don't forget, it'll stop masturbation it'll cure tuberculosis, it'll prevent mental illness. Yeah, these were all 19th century claims, things we didn't know, insanity, fecal and urinary incontinence, circumcision will just fix him right up. You won't have any of those problems. You know, those were blatant untruths and lies. And then, you know, into the, and then cleanliness. Well, again, who wants to have a dirty baby or a dirty penis, right? Nobody Mm. stops to think that you can wash. You can teach your child, you know, to, to read to do math, um, can woodworking and send your child to college or not, or to vocational school. And your child can become a a master carpenter or a physicist or a software developer. And you can't learn to wash his genitals. I mean, it's so absurd. You just teach them. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: You teach them the same way. way You teach them to brush the
1: teeth. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Brushing your teeth probably feels a lot less pleasurable than washing your penis in the shower. Mm. Um, And there's nothing inherently dirty about the the human genitals. I mean, you know, this is throughout, again, you don't need to be obsessed about cleaning your genitals. Just regular old bathing is just fine. That's true. Mm. Taking care of an intact boy is far easier than taking care of a newly circumcised boy. And the foreskin does not detach from the head of the penis. Until the boy is older, and sometimes as old as the late, you know, late teens. So that's the other. That's the other thing that you allow me to talk about is boys who are kept intact don't stop being potential prey victims of a medical system that loathes the foreskin. So we get reports every day mm-hmm. from parents who've taken their child to the doctor or to the emergency mm-hmm. room. Their intact mm-hmm. child. And had the doctor or nurse grab that child's penis and force back the foreskin, Mm -hmm. which is breaking the adhesion to the glans penis, to the head of the penis, creating immense pain, um, bleeding, uh, subsequent possibility of infection, terrible trauma. Actually, a story came out the day we're recording this. Can I mention that? Mm -hmm. We're recording this on April 27th. Right? Mm-hmm. Like a story came out today or yesterday in a paper in the Midwest, North Dakota, about a mom whose child was forcibly retracted in the emergency room with the excuse that he needed a catheter. You don't need to forcibly retract a child to put in a catheter. And this story repeated probably thousands of times a week around the US. Doctors and nurses despite the fact the American Academy of Pediatrics says a child's force, a a male's foreskin should never be forcibly retracted. It will retract on its own when it's time. Despite the fact that the AAP says that, doctors and nurses insist that this is necessary. Mm -hmm. And they tell parents they should be doing it. And that creates terrible harm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't end, you know, it doesn't end with keeping your son intact. That's something that's really important for people to know that they're gonna to have to fight off the circumcision culture. And it doesn't end with adulthood. Men who might have a minor problem or no problem at all um, go, we have a story coming out soon from a young man, not young anymore, when he was 18, he went for his college physical and the doctor told him same thing, you know, you might as well get that taken care of right now, you're gonna to have to have, have it cut off anyway eventually. So you might as well do it now before you go to college. And um, he realized immediately he he did. And he said it was against his better judgment, but he went along with the doctor and realized immediately that he had lost sensation Mm
0: -hmm. a lot. Yeah. I would say that was for me, the biggest challenge of keeping my son intact was I was, well, I was really surprised at the pushback I received because I homeschooled, I had home births. And I got a little bit of pushback for those things. But when I said that I wasn't going to circumcise, it was much more of a pushback, which surprised me because in my head too, I was thinking like, why is my son's penis of your business anyway? But I had like the most ridiculous things thrown at me like, oh, no girl's ever going to want to have sex with him because he's going to smell so bad and he's going to get STDs. And it's just, it was even back then when I just didn't know that much, I still knew that those were ridiculous statements. And then making sure that every time I brought him to the doctor, that they weren't going to pull back on his foreskin. Every time I left him with someone to watch him, that they knew 100% that they are not to pull back on the foreskin because none of my family and friends had ever cared for an intact baby. So I thought there was something,
1: They thought there was something they had to do right instead Mm -hmm. of just leave the child alone. Right.
0: Right. And I know a lot of, um, Mm -hmm. when this is, when this topic is brought up in like Facebook groups, there's a lot of people, especially people who work in assisted living with elderly who are like, well, you should see what issues they have now. And it smells bad, but that's also the time where a lot of foreskin was probably being pulled back. Right. Well, not only
1: that, but what do they do to take care of women?
0: I mean, right.
1: women's genitals excrete smegma also, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure there are way more old ladies in these assisted in these nursing homes than there are old men. And what are they doing? Have right. you ever had anybody say that's a reason to shave off, you know, all the outer genitalia from women? Mm-hmm. I mean. You wash somebody just has to be washed,
0: right? Right um, And I did say that at one point to someone I said, if you are responsible for bathing this person and you're saying that this person's penis smells all the time, who is to blame here? If they can't blame them if they can't bathe themselves and you are bathing them, obviously you're not doing your job properly right, right, if there's right. still smell, you know after. Right.
1: Well the other thing is since we're talking about
0: smelling and like this person
1: has lived with his foreskin for 80 years, 90 years, mm-hmm. and presumably has gotten plenty of pleasure and use out of it, and it never caused him any trouble. So why are we using this as an excuse to cut a baby boy's penis, right? I mean, if just the same way we plan for our own old age, or we should be planning for our own old age, maybe we move it to a one-story house or something. If a man really you know who loves his foreskin and his body and feels good about himself feels that this is going to be a big problem for people he can still decide to have circumcision right i mean you don't have to cut a non consenting child why don't we just remove the breasts of all girls mm-hmm. because we have a 1 in american women have a 1 in 8 chance of developing breast cancer sometime over our lifetime. That's an astonishing statistic. Mm -hmm. Males have a one in 100,000 chance of developing penile cancer. Mm -hmm. One in 100,000, and it can occur in circumcised boys as well as intact boys, circumcised men, usually Mm -hmm. old men. So one in 100,000, and we're talking about cutting off 100% of foreskins, and one in eight for breast cancer And we would be appalled at the idea of prophylactically removing the breast buds of every girl. But it would make her chances of getting breast cancer nil. Right. And then that's somehow a ridiculous comparison. Well, is it? I mean, you have one penis, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a functional body part. Why is that? Or you say, well, you know, why don't we cut off people's fingers? Uh, Why don't we cut off? you know, take out people's fingernails so they won't get fungus under it. Oh, that's ridiculous. Well, is it? Why is that more ridiculous than cutting off a part of somebody's penis?
0: I'm Um, so glad you said that because that is the exact argument I used with a family member (laughs) once when when they were saying like, oh, well, he'll get penile cancer. And I said something like, well, my daughter has a greater chance of getting breast cancer. So should I remove her breast now? I think she was like two at the time and they didn't really have a response to that.
1: No, all of these- these uh, justifications I mean this is what people do when not all people some people will say will stop and say oh let me think about this right but it's very common for people to look for defenses that they've really never even used in the past and they don't know anything about right because it's threatening to hear especially if you've cut your child right Mm -hmm. or if you've cut a child doctors right or if you've persuaded if you've lied to parents so that they'll cut their children you know it hurts and you told them it doesn't hurt right so it's a natural thing for people who are complicit in some way to put up these excuses and these defenses and they're all ridiculous really Mm. right they're all none of them make any sense it doesn't make sense to remove a normal healthy protective pleasurable body part doesn't make any sense to remove it and to remove it from somebody else who cannot understand what it means. Cannot give consent is a travesty.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and we know we so it, much more about like childhood trauma now, right? and how it impacts mm-hmm. you for the rest of your life. You, I can't help but wonder like how traumatic it is for babies. We have
1: a, we have on our website, on the intactamerica.org website, we have a section on adverse childhood experiences and Dan Bollinger, who's a Intact America board member and volunteer, and I have written a paper about circumcision as an adverse childhood experience, uh, lobbying essentially for that to be added, for genital cutting to be added to the uh, inventory of ACEs, of adverse childhood experiences. There's just no way that it doesn't qualify, right? But that is still you know, far, far from happening. It's right. considered... And why you know why is this considered controversial? It's when it's so obvious, but the reason it is is because the status quo is extremely powerful, and then if you combine that with the medical industrial complex and the compulsion to do medical procedures and charge for them that our country's you know medical industry has, all of these things coalesce. You know, you're essentially the, the Now, man who's doing the story for Intact America's Voices column used the word predation. He said, you know, the medical system preys on men with foreskins. And I had said in the past, it's like the foreskin has a barcode on it. And, you know, if you could just grab that foreskin and take it, you know, there's there's a claim that can go into the insurance company or to Medicaid. And everybody's complicit, the hospital, the doctors, the nurses who help to solicit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, be, uh, you know, as a lactation consultant, I see that baby is shut down after they're anywhere from four to 12 hours. They're just, mm-hmm. they're not going to eat. They're just shut down. They just want to sleep. And the parents at my facility are told it's because the Tylenol, they give them Tylenol before they do the circumcision. Um, and they tell them it's the Tylenol that makes them super sleepy. But really it's just that they went through this really traumatic procedure. They just right. kind of like shut down because they're only one, two, three days old and right. you're putting them through this very painful, unnecessary surgery. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, if a family is struggling with breastfeeding, I'll try to nudge them to slowly at least delay the circumcision. If they're completely set on having it, like don't do it now when your baby's already struggling because it's not going to help anything at all because those babies just shut down and then we can't work on breastfeeding at all.
1: So interesting because- Oh, there's so many contradictions that people don't see, they ignore, right? So it's harmless, but don't do it on a baby that's not medically stable. Well, if it's harmless, and if they really don't feel a thing, and it's not traumatic, and it won't interfere with their their breastfeeding, then why do we put that caveat in there? The baby has to be medically stable. You know, you don't do it on little preemies. Well, why? If it's nothing, if it's harm, if it's beneficial, right? Mm. um, If they just sleep through it, why wouldn't you do it on a preemie? Now, I'm not advocating to do it on a preemie. What I'm saying is how contradictory that is, that you would be protecting a medically fragile child from circumcision, but promoting it as a completely harmless, routine, painless procedure with no negative consequences. Mm. The other thing we really haven't talked about much is The complications. And uh, the complications are far more common than parents are led to believe. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, in its now expired circumcision statement, uh, has a a sentence that says the risks are less than the benefits, although complications have never been systematically studied. Well, how can you make a statement which is untrue (laughs) on its face that the risks are less than the benefits? since there are no benefits, but then to admit that there's never been a systematic study of complications and there are short-term complications like the ones you're talking about, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Failure of breastfeeding, bleeding, infection, pain. And Those are short-term. Die.
0: C- I don't think that's talked about <laughs> that enough. And, babies and babies die, die from circumcision. I remember when this was like years and years ago, but the whole controversy over hot dogs, giving children Hot dogs came out, and that's when they started telling parents you have to cut the hot dogs in half and across because a certain number of young babies had died eating hot dogs. And I remember looking at that and thinking, but more babies die a year from circumcision, and nobody's talking about that. Right, right.
1: And the reasons given, you know, when a baby dies from circumcision, and you know it's from circumcision, and I know it's from circumcision because he bled to death, or went into shock, or had cardiac arrest, or had a massive infection, a massive herpes infection. Uh, whatever, Um, the reasons given, for example, on the death certificate are exsanguination, bleeding to death. Well, why does a newborn baby bleed to death? Newborn baby doesn't just spontaneously develop an open wound that bleeds to death, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So circumcision is not listed as the cause of death and then parents, or if the baby had a bleeding disorder, but you're circumcising a newborn, you have no idea that baby had a bleeding disorder. I don't know when tests are done to, I've heard, I don't know if you want to put this in, that one reason that Judaism calls for circumcision later, the eighth day, there are various theories, but one is that it takes a few days for the babies to be able to coagulate better.
0: Yeah, they, um, the vitamin K builds up more. Okay. There? Yes, okay, that's so that, true. Yeah.
1: So you know more than I do about that. And thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So circumcising a one day old baby, one of the most heartbreaking anecdotes I heard from a young man who was having tremendous sexual dysfunction and a malformed penis from a circumcision it was in his early twenties. And he wrote a letter to a pediatric urologist and said, I was circumcised when I was seven hours old. And, you know, you're imagining this tiny baby, right? I mean, seven hours is sort of what it takes for a hospital to bathe the baby, put his little wristband on. I mean, seven hours is nothing. This child is barely of the non-womb world. Mm. And that somebody would cut off part of its body is just like the most heartbreaking statement. And then he, you know, he's an example of permanent devastating complications. You're operating on this little tiny. People say, look, circumcision is tiny flap of skin. Well, everything's tiny on a baby. His little, his pinky is super tiny. So you can cut it off because it's little. His, his, his heart is tiny, you know, <laughs> like everything. And so what a, what a stupid, and then that's projected forward. If it's if you cut off this tiny little piece of skin on this newborn baby, even though you have to rip it away from the head of his penis, but, and then you're saying it was just a tiny piece of skin. Well, think about the size of a grown man's penis. And the foreskin is a prominent organ. Mm -hmm. you know, it varies in size, just like all of our body parts vary in size from person to person, but uh, a foreskin unfurled in an adult and it's a double layer can be 12 square inches of skin, 12 to 15 square inches of highly uh, erogenous nerve laden, blood vessel laden skin, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, thousands of nerve endings. I mean, Right. that's why it's there,
0: right? Right. It's like, like a flap of skin, but the, it has a purpose. It's not like a hangnail or something. And it's also, skin it's also
1: right. And it's also a, a unique flap of skin, you know, a unique mm-hmm. uh, organ, uh, much like, you know, you could say, you know, the lips are just skin. Well, the, you know, the, lip, the eyelids are just skin. No, they're highly specialized, mm-hmm. uh, and functional, the lips, like the, force, like the penile foreskin, it keeps the inside of your mouth moist. It, it, mm-hmm. It's a lubricating, enhanced lubrication. The foreskin enhances lubrication for intercourse. The gliding action makes intercourse more pleasurable for both the man and his partner. The foreskin has certain, something called Meissner's corpuscles, certain nerve endings that are that are completely ablated with the removal of the foreskin. The frenulum, which keeps the foreskin from just flopping around, in an adult man, the frenulum is highly erogenous, highly sensitive. And in some circumcisions, the doctors dig it out. So there's oh. nothing left. And others, yeah. they leave it. And it can either be a source of sensitivity and pleasure or it can be a source of agony, depending mm. on you know, what else is exposed. Um, and then the cir- circumcision also, as you know, exposes the glands, penis, the head of the penis, which is meant to be an internal organ. It's, it would be like, again, if you remove if you remove your lips, the inside of your mouth is going to dry up. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, you can use, you know, lubricating mouthwash, but the inside of your mouth is going to dry up. The glans penis becomes another color in mm-hmm. a circumcised man. A glans penis is pink or red uh, in an intact man and more gray in, because the um, it's become rubbed by underwear you know mm-hmm. exposed to the outside world and that's right. not how it was intended mm-hmm. um, you know if yeah. you're a pet lover if you have a male dog mm-hmm. male dogs have foreskins completely covering the rest of their penis and that's for protection and mm-hmm. the for the penis emerges when the rest of the penis emerges you know when the dog becomes sexually stimulated and that is true in a male in a human male Mm-hmm. with erection the foreskin slides back and that's how you know a man is primed for for sexual pleasure and then when he becomes flaccid again the foreskin will recover the head of the penis and protect it mm-hmm. and all of those things no urologist trying to get a 18 year old or a 20 year old to have a, a, a circumcision is ever going to tell him those things he'll just say yes. oh it's no big deal he won't know
0: and we had something in our family, which I won't go into too much detail about to protect my son's privacy, where circumcision was being recommended. I think he was maybe 12 or 13 at the time to address an issue that had nothing to do with the foreskin or anything wow. like that. And thankfully my husband who was born in Colombia, so his culture is not circumcised. Right, right. was like, yeah, whatever. That doctor doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: And was that child spared?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because my husband was like, no, we're not doing this. Wow. Yeah. That's, but I wonder if my husband had not been from a culture that Mm -hmm. did not routinely circumcise.
1: You know, you tend because circumcision is so normal, which of course we know a lot of things we consider normal aren't normal, right? Are not okay. Um, Just because something is common doesn't mean it's beneficial because it is. And because you're vulnerable always when you go to a physician, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, Power relationship there that's very common. And this person speaks with this voice of authority. And you think, well, why would he be saying that? Why would he or she be saying that if it wasn't true? And we also don't want to believe that doctors are just trying to make money off of us. We kind of know globally that doctors try to make money. They have to make money, of course. We all have to make a living. But to translate that into this intimate relationship where this person has your health and hopefully, your well-being mm-hmm. um, in their hands. You don't really want to be that skeptical. This man who I was talking about earlier, who said that this doctor convinced him to have a circumcision before he went off to college was the same doctor who did the circumcision. So, you know, there and an adult circumcision, I mean, they have a few hundred bucks on the table. And if he can do college physicals and convince intact men to do that, I mean, you know, it's sickening really when you think mm-hmm. of somebody lying in order to perform a surgery and i know there'll be people listening to us who will say you know that's not fair but i worked in the healthcare system i still work in the healthcare system i was i ran a, a medicaid health plan for 25 years and you know we saw a lot of medically dubious procedures being performed and sometimes at the parents request because they thought it was beneficial, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're kind of don't talk about it so much anymore, but antibiotics for viruses, you know, people wanted antibiotics. A child had a sore throat. They didn't want to hear that that there was no bacterial infection. And we're kind of that's not kind of the issue of the day, but 25, 30 years ago, very much the issue of the day. Mm-hmm. Don't over prescribe antibiotics. And we'd been trained to think that everything needed a pill. Right. Um,
0: yeah. Kind of changing topic a little bit back to like reasons why parents would circumcise their baby and how ridiculous some of them are. I think the one that makes me roll my eyes the most is well, the father is circumcised and they want mm-hmm. the baby to look like the father. And I never quite understood that one because it's having girls first, I was like, is this something where, you know, the father takes his son on a camping trip and then they both like whip out their penis and say, see, we're both. We both look alike, so I guess we're, you know, we're related or something. It just never made sense to me to cut off a piece of your baby's skin just so that your genitals look similar. Which of course they don't, right? Right. You know, what
1: about what about the hair? Yeah. You know,
0: um, yeah. what
1: about the testicles of a new uh, of a baby or a young child as opposed to the hairy testicles of his father? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what about size? I mean, doesn't it make more sense to inject dye into your child's eyes so they'll have the same color eyes that you do because everybody sees that nobody sees the any the the penises right Mm -hmm. so it's it's clearly a an absurd uh, argument however i i think it runs pretty deep because i think that it's a roundabout way of saying well there's nothing wrong with father you know Mm -hmm. because i i've also talked to women who have said that their husbands were you know absolutely furious about the idea of not circumcising their child. And I've said, you know, you might want to think about the fact that he thinks you're telling him there's something wrong with his penis. Mm-hmm. And so saying, well, you know, you're the man and you have the penis. And if you want your son to look like you is a kind of backdoor way of saying, I think you're fine. I think yeah. you're okay. Please don't feel bad. I can uh, that. Yeah. And, and so, I often, you know, hardly have any credentials as a marriage counselor, as a relationship counselor. But I have talked to a number of women who were just so angry at their husbands for failing to want to protect the sons. But the guy is going through his own trauma, Mm -hmm. probably the first time in his life. He's like having to think about the fact that this was done to him. Mm -hmm. So that plays into both the look like the father, the other look like the father thing is. If you want to think about it, well, when did that change? Because throughout human history, men kept their foreskins. So, mm-hmm. who was the first? Who was the first one that came up with that? Because if you really want to, you know, keep your boy intact, and then your grandchildren will look like their fathers, mm-hmm. right? Right. Because, right. Right. <laughs> right? If, if my son has a son and keeps him intact, he'll look like his father, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many things. I mean, that uh, would you, you know, if if the father Lost a finger in an accident, or lost an arm in an accident, which you cut off your baby's arm. Right. And of course, what you're going to hear is, "Oh, that's ridiculous." Well, yeah, it is. And So mm-hmm. is cutting off part of his penis ridiculous? So that yeah. he'll look like another amputee. Yeah. Of course, you know, circumcision is an amputation. Mm-hmm. So do you think that that we should do? You know, we should carve up our children to look like the accident that befell uh, their parents. If a girl, you know, if a mother has a breast removed, do we then go and for you know, because she had cancer? Do we go and remove the breast of her daughter so she'll look like her mother? Mm-hmm. You know? And there, you know, are... you know, all these arguments. I mean, yeah. you know, why do you get them? You know, <laughs> and why do I get them? And it's so hard to make this change, but it is changing, and mm-hmm. it's changing thanks to people like you. Mm-hmm. It's changing thanks to organizations like Intact America and all the people who speak out. And it's changing because there are doctors who understand and who are enlightened and there are nurses who understand, but it's just still far too prevalent. And we have to keep talking and-
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Progress is so slow. Yeah, yeah, it is.
1: But you know, uh, the social, social media is also when people criticize social media, it's also a massive opportunity to reach out. I mean, we have, we have a newsletter that's monthly and you, your folks can go to intactamerica.org and sign up for our newsletter. It's got great information, current information, stories, advice, news items. Uh, our website has all of that and more. Uh, there's a section called Our Positions.
0: And got,
1: mm-hmm. You know, very brief and concise um, statements about the kind of the various arguments given for circumcision and our arguments for keeping children, people intact. Our Facebook page is very lively, Intact mm-hmm. America on Facebook we have another page called circumcision debate and that's something you might want to refer some of your clients who are not sure what they want to do because and they find the intactivist argument to in their face intactamerica.org is for people who kind of have already come come along a certain way but circumcision debate on facebook and on onlinecircumcisiondebate.org i mean uh, website has uh, you know some of the common I'm afraid he won't look like his father. I'm afraid I won't be able to keep him clean. You know, those things that people have been taught to fear. And we address those on that page. And at circumcision debate. Circumcisiondebate.org and circumcision debate on Facebook. And then our main website, intactamerica.org.
0: Okay. And I'll put all of these links in the show notes. As awesome. Well. That would be great. Um, What is one thing that you'd want parents to know about circumcision when they have a baby? Like if you could only say one thing to them, what would you say? Your baby doesn't
1: want to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. Your baby doesn't need to be circumcised. It's going to hurt your baby now. And it's going to permanently damage his sexual future Mm -hmm. at its best,
0: at Mm -hmm. its best. That's with no Um, complications. That's with
1: no complications, right? At its best. It will limit his sexual pleasure forever and immediately it will cause him, just having come out of a peaceful womb into a tough world, uh, it will cause him immediate pain and suffering. And it will cause you a lot of trouble. Who wants to be doing wound care on a newborn? You've got to get used to having this baby at home. You've got to take care of yourself after uh, a delivery, whether vaginal or cesarean, you've got to get your sleep, baby's got to get sleep, your family has to be integrated in a different way, a new, a new person in the household, all of these things. Why would you want to add into that wound care, mm-hmm. bandages, Vaseline, possibly an infection, blood in the diaper, worried about the feces getting into the womb? You know, it's absurd, right? right. So your baby doesn't need to be circumcised, you can protect your baby. You're the protector of that baby. So I told mm-hmm. you a lot of things. You said one thing. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> but I think but, it's important for parents to hear that. Who's going to protect your baby if not you? Mm-hmm.
1: Right? That's, mm. that's, that's, you're, you're there to protect your baby. Your baby can't protect himself. Right. And to cut off his body part is not protecting him. You keep him intact. And then, you know, over his lifetime, he can learn to protect himself. But when he's vulnerable, that's, that's your job.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree 100%. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this topic, because I feel like there's still a ways to go before we kind of um, make a lot of progress in this area.
1: Right. Well, thank you. And, you know, if you would like to do a program in the future on the forcible retraction issue, because I think it's huge. And I think, you know, that, that, and it goes throughout uh, an intact male's lifetime, actually, but certainly during the vulnerable years, toddlers, elementary school. I mean, a lot of doctors think babies should be, boys should be able to retract by the age of something two, something four, something seven. The average age of spontaneous foreskin retraction is around 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And many boys don't retract naturally until later. And I've realized and you're hearing, that this is a risk factor for intact boys. Keeping your baby intact is great, but your job's not done. You know, you still, as you said, you have to fight off, you know, the doctors and we have to, every time this happens, a parent needs to speak out and give that doctor material. I'll send you a link to that. Okay, Um, There's an AAP brochure on it. Um, So maybe if you want to do another show, I'd be happy to speak on it or I'd be happy to suggest other people um, great. Um, I think that's like a good idea. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Shelly. I you really, so much. I really appreciate the time. Mm-hmm. Have a great
0: day. You too. Thank you for joining us this week on the baby pro podcast. Make sure to visit our website, com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at IBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.